What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And just ahead on the program, with all the layoffs, how much is the job market really weakening? I'm John Tucker in New York. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where the shops and restaurants are full of festive cheer, but the wider picture for the consumer sector is looking much gloomier. I'm Doug Krisner. We'll look at the many challenges facing the Chinese consumer. I'm Amy Morris in Washington. We'll look at the career and legacy of outgoing House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Hi, everybody. I'm John Tucker, and let's start today's program with a look at the jobs market. Joining us now to talk about it, Bloomberg Global Economics and Policy Editor Michael McKee. You know, we've had tens of thousands of job cuts in the past few weeks, a lot of them in technology. What are we expecting to see in this week's jobs report. Any of these going to show up in this report? We're not expecting it. Uh, We may see some declines in tech employment, but it appears most people are finding new jobs fairly quickly, at least according to the jobless claims numbers. And so uh, tech is a very small part of the overall uh, labor market. There are 145, 146 million jobs in America, and so tens of thousands is still a very small percentage. Is the uh, employment report, the jobs report, still the mother of all economic reports? Well, it may be the mother of all economic reports. The CPI may be the mother-in-law of all economic reports because the Fed is kind of focused more on prices these days. But the jobs report is always going to be there because it's a sign of the strength of the economy. And we're moving into a period now where we've had the Fed focused on how fast it was going to move and how high it was going to move. And now the question that seems to be developing in the markets is, okay, if we buy your idea that you go to 5% and you do it more gradually, when are you going to start cutting? And that will depend on the economy. If the jobless rate starts to rise significantly, then the Fed is going to have to think about it. They insist they'll live with a higher jobless rate, but if it goes too far, then they might start thinking about uh, a rate reduction. So that's going to be the way the debate plays out in 2023. How tight is the labor market right now? Well, by all standard indicators, it's very tight still. The number of job openings is still very high, and the unemployment rate is still very low. The participation rate is not going up significantly, so there aren't enough workers to fill all the jobs is what it comes down to. Now, you may have a labor mismatch where the people who are available to work don't have the skills necessary for the jobs that are open. That's hard to prove, but it is a theory for part of why we see such a a high rate of job openings. But the other 
situation is this is totally unusual because everybody lost their job at once, and then a lot of people decided not to come back into the labor force and to uh, perhaps retire. So there are a lot of jobs going unfilled that may never be filled. It probably is the Fed and economists don't really know how that's going to play out. Okay, so if I'm a business owner and I need a worker and I can't find anybody out there, I'm going to offer more and more pay and maybe pay the workers that I do have to keep them. I'm going to pay them more, and that's going to feed into inflation because then I have to raise my end prices that I charge to consumers. Does that make sense? That makes sense, and it, it's what's been happening, particularly on the service industry side. We saw it happen in manufacturing. That's weakened some now that demand uh, has weakened for goods, people spending more on services. And services industries were the last to recoup some of the workers that they lost, particularly things like restaurants and bars and uh, many retail stores. So they have had to raise their pay rates, and they have had to raise prices to pay for it. The question is, how many more workers are they going to be hiring? And then uh, those many of those jobs, particularly in restaurants and bars, are transitory. People don't stay in them very long. They're taking them uh, as a springboard to something else, or they're uh, going to be looking for something else because the job itself is very hard. So once you get back to a rough uh, ability to serve your customers, do you then need to keep raising rates or uh, do you need can you say, well, maybe that's it, I'm done or I'm not going to pay as much to the next round of people because now I'm back staffed where I need to be. What's the lag time between enacting policy by the Federal Reserve and the time it shows up in something like the labor market? Traditionally, uh, as Milton Friedman put it, it's long and variable lags with no That's timing, not real precise, With no it? timing on it. <laughs> Estimates by researchers have suggested somewhere between 12 and 18 months, although it is kind of accepted wisdom now, and, and certainly at the Fed, that it's faster than that now because we have so many transmission channels that are so quick. You have instantaneous payments for things, and you can... One of the examples always used was restaurants were slow to change prices because then they would have to reprint all their menus. But now you're just doing it as a PDF that people are scanning their phones on so you can raise prices very quickly. So you can see a much quicker move into the economy. But nevertheless, the feeling is we're only six months into this. Seems like forever, but only six months into this and that uh, we may start to see some of it really start to hit coming fairly soon. The uh, Federal Reserve Chairman, Jerome Powell, is going to also speak in some format this coming week. What's he expected to say? It'll be a check-the-box kind of thing. They'll ask him, we presume, how high are you going to raise it at this meeting? And uh, the betting is he's going to push people to 50 basis points, half a percentage point. And then how high do you think we need to go? And the consensus of the Fed speakers over the last couple of weeks has been around 5%. Some are 475, some are 525, but somewhere in that range. Then the question is, how long are you going to keep it there? And what are you going to look for? And, And that's what Wall Street wants to know. Mike, as always, a pleasure. Michael McKee. And just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, waning consumer confidence in the U.K., I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. Up later in the program, consumers and the economy in China. But first, 
The U.K. headed toward the holiday season with a recession looming and consumer confidence lower than it was during the financial crisis. Consumer spending is held up so far, but how long is that going to last? For more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. John, Nathan, the lights and decorations are up in London and it's as hard as ever to get a restaurant booking here. But the visible cheer from some is coming at a time as deep economic gloom overall. Inflation is at a 40-year high in the UK. We've got rising interest rates and a crippling jump in rents and mortgage costs for many. So how resilient are Britain's consumers looking in this crucial end-of-year shopping period? Let's bring in our opinion columnist Andrea Felstad and our Bloomberg Pursuits reporter Sarah Rappaport as well. Um, Andrea, the last retail sales figures showed a little bit of growth in October. Consumer confidence surveys still very much in the doldrum. What is the picture going to be like going into this really important period of the year for consumers? Well, the most remarkable thing is, despite all the doom and gloom and the cost of living crisis and all the issues that consumers are facing, they are being remarkably resilient. We've seen a little bit of distress. We had Made.com and Jewels collapse, but aside from that, there is very little distress. The most remarkable thing is that nothing's really happened yet. Oh, yet is the key word in that. Uh, we, we, we had updates on the likes of, you know, High Street Staples here, Marks and Spencers, Next, people like that. What did we learn from, from their results? We learned that things were ticking along okay. I think this Christmas will be fine. I think this will be the last hurrah. The important thing is that this is the first year for three that it'll be a relatively normal Christmas. People will be out visiting friends and family. When they do so, they tend to buy gifts for them. The hospitality industry is seeing bookings return, particularly things like office Christmas parties, office nights out that really haven't happened for the last two years. So I think this Christmas will be fine. What we then face is a very nasty hangover in the new year. Mm, so it could be the next set of results before we get that clearer picture of it. Um, Sarah Rappaport, some consumers feeling very resilient indeed. Um, you've been writing about luxury spas for Bloomberg Pursuits. First of all, what did you find out? And secondly, how, what's the demand looking like for, for services like that? Well, like Andrea said, you know, luxury is doing great. Luxury is doing absolutely fine. People who have money to spend are spending it. Because like she said, over the past three years, you couldn't. You couldn't book a five-star hotel at Christmas to travel from the U.S. without tests or, you know, vaccines or anything. Now you can, and the exchange rate is great for Americans, and they're coming over here and they're spending. And what I found in the luxury spa industry is that there's a bit of an arms race right now within the top hotels, the Bulgari Spa, Claridge's, the Corinthia. Claridge's just had a huge revamp. Now there's a pool, and they've read a pool. There's a pool now. You can also get the full uh, celebrity experience with a 600-pound manicure by a celebrity manicurist. Um, I have not sampled it, but (laughs) (laughs) there's all kinds of um, really competitive offers trying to get the whole VIP experience for the 1% consumer that they're looking for. Okay, I mean, there's a good question as to whether or not you might have the best job at Bloomberg, Sarah. Um, (laughs) I think I I do. I I think competing with you will be our colleague Manus Cranny, who was speaking to the CEO of Moat Hennessy, Philippe Scow, and talking about the demand that they're seeing for champagne. Let's take a listen. Internally, we talk about the roaring 20s. Uh, In uh, 2022 will be a fabulous year for champagne. Um, Without giving any numbers, we are running out of stock on, uh, on most of our best champagnes. So uh, I think as people have been coming out of COVID, there's been this pent up demand for 
luxury, enjoyment, traveling, and so all that. running out of, of stock. How, how yes. close to the end of the champagne stock are we? Well, there's every year new stock coming, fortunately. So um, there will be more to come for next year. That's the CEO of Moat Hennessy speaking to Manus Cranny. So, Sarah, we've been talking about this boom then in the hospitality sector. So uh, we're still, as Andrea was telling us, you know, still seeing reasonable amount of resilience in consumers when they're spending on things. What about what they're spending on going out? Well, there might be a nasty hangover in January, as there always is. But for now, London is fully booked. It's very hard to get a table at a, at a top restaurant right now. The, the bars are packed. The, the West End is packed. Theatre theater is booming. They need this Christmas season to be a success. And obviously, there are problems. Like, their gas bills are, are very high, and they didn't have the previous seasons. But right now, um, business is booming in the West End and hospitality. People are coming over, and they're, and they're spending. And, of course, it's a, a chance for many people to have a blowout after a few difficult years. There's that sort of YOLO mentality, though, after like the lockdown and COVID. People want to have a big Christmas. They want to see their friends and family. They want to get back to normality. And even though things are more expensive than they were in 2019, people are putting it on credit cards or they're deciding, you know what, for me, this is worth worth it this year. They're going to go out and they'll, they'll spend. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be a big Christmas for hospitality in London. You're making me excited about the coming <laughs> weeks, although I'm quite worried about where I'm going to go for dinner. Anyway, Andrea, let's talk about the, the consumer luxury sector, which is, I I suppose, in that space of the, the champagne and the, the high-end spas that Sarah was telling us about, what does the picture look like there? It's very similar. What we're seeing in luxury is we're seeing the very top end continue to spend on, you know, Hermes handbags, Chanel handbags. What we're just starting to see, this is more in the US than in Europe yet, is that that more marginal luxury consumer, the consumer that perhaps spent stimulus checks on a new handbag or a new pair of sneakers in 2021, they haven't been so uh, exuberant this year and they are just starting to rein in their spending. So I would say that is a bit of a warning sign for the luxury industry as we go into next year. What about this idea of, you know, the cheap pound has been a big advantage for people who are travelling, particularly from the US into the UK and looking to go shopping. Shopping. Is that playing out in, in the boost for, for UK luxury brands? It's more playing out in Europe because they still have uh, the tax-free benefit that we no longer have uh, in London. Mm. And brands have been saying, Burberry said last week, that they are not seeing so many tourists coming to London. They're going to Paris or Milan because of that, you know, not having that tax break. So the, the, the luxury industry, the British luxury industry is lobbying to try and find a way forward so that they can encourage more uh, overseas tourists to come to the UK and get that benefit. Yeah, of course, because I mean, we've been reporting on, on various parts of uh, Bloomberg about the all of the things that Americans are able to buy more easily, property being one of them in the UK as well. Uh, Bloomberg Opinion columnist Andrea Felstead and our Pursuits reporter Sarah Rappaport, thank you so much uh, to both of you for your insights. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. John, Nathan, Stephen, thanks a lot. And just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, consumer spending in China. I'm John Tucker. This is Bloomberg.
Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. I'm John Tucker in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Holiday spending is in the spotlight this week as we head into the winter holiday season. Spending also in focus in China. For more, let's go to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Doug Krisner. John, with the holiday season now underway in the U.S., the focus for markets is on the strength of the consumer. We have seen exceptional resilience so far in spite of stubbornly high inflation. Although, given uncertainty around the outlook, the risk is overcautious buying. Now, it was interesting that the South China Morning Post has already reported on a decline in Chinese exports to the U.S., what does that speak to? Meantime, in China, domestic consumer spending has already been slowing. The primary factor, obviously, has been Beijing's strict zero-COVID policy. We want to take a closer look now at the outlook for Chinese consumers as we approach the end of the year. And we are joined by Enda Curran, Bloomberg's chief Asia economics correspondent. Enda, thank you for joining us. One of the things that struck me was the retail sales data for the month of October, negative seven-tenths of one percent, which was really much weaker than the market was looking for. I think the forecast was for a gain of 1.2%. What is happening underneath the hood here in the Chinese economy where the consumer is concerned? It's a pretty downbeat story for the Chinese consumer. Two things are going on in China. On the one side, China is going through a big real estate slump. House prices continue to fall and demand for new homes continues to weaken. That's obviously eroding everybody's net worth and sense of, you know, upbeat or, or well-being, so to speak. So that's one side of what's going on. The other side of what's going on, which we all know, is the very aggressive measures to contain COVID, which continue to roll around the country in either the form of restrictions or mass testing or maybe even in some cases a broader lockdown. So all of that combined is really weighing on a consumer. Now, you mentioned the October consumer data. October is a month in the year when there's a big week-long holiday in China. It's meant to be a month of the year when there's big spending on you know on tourism-related and travel-related uh, activities. That didn't happen. It went into negative territory. There is broad-based weakness across all of the main gauges of retail spending from household goods through to eating out and the like. Uh, and there's no sign of that turning around, and that's the critical point. The consumer, which had become the engine of China's economy in recent years, remains stuck in the doldrums. Do we know or can we delineate between, let's say, sales at physical stores versus e-commerce? Is there any way to understand how consumer behavior has adjusted relative to what we're talking about, particularly as it relates to COVID? Now, there is evidence of declining, even declining online demand uh, in terms of the online annual shopping bonanzas, uh, no doubt about it. But I should go back one step to one of your points there. Remember, China's economy and China's consumers had it pretty good in 2020 and 2021 because the disease the, the disease was controlled pretty well and the level of disruption was nothing like what's happening this year. Now, the consumer remained subdued overall, you are right, but the economy had it pretty good. 2022 has been the big game changer because 
the arrival of Omicron has made it so much more difficult to control and and by extension that's impeding on people's daily working and recreational lives in ways that, that hasn't before. So school closures have become much more routine, daily testing requirements have become much more routine. All of that is of course impacting what people are spending and how they are spending. The, the net result is the consumption story has is, is very much in the doldrums as a growth driver. You and I were talking before we went to air about the difficulty in measuring a consumer sentiment in China. There are no surveys uh, for that kind of uh, sentiment per se, but I would imagine that employment, to the extent that you are employed and are earning an income, that's going to have a very positive correlation. I know that youth employment, though, in China is what, running at 20% right now? So demographically, I think that there are probably pockets of the economy in terms of demographics where sentiment is maybe a little weaker than in others, right? It is. It, it is tough to scientifically gauge sentiment uh, in China, both because of the political system and, of course, an economy of that size, Doug. But we do get snapshots of it, especially in social media. It is often the case that there can be a, a, you know, a series of outrage amongst residents over some COVID-related policy that gets censored. That's an indication that uh, people are unhappy. There was, of course, the mortgage boycott earlier this year because of an unhappiness towards government policy. Those are all indications. There have been there have been ways to sense that the Chinese consumer is not happy at the moment. We do know that. Um, I think, though, going forward, a lot will depend on just where these government policy pivots do go. And uh, always a pleasure. Thanks uh, for making time to chat with us. And to Curran, Bloomberg's chief Asia economics correspondent. I'm Doug Krisner in New York. You can join us weekdays for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia beginning at 7 a.m. in Hong Kong, 6 p.m. on Wall Street. John. Doug, thanks a lot. And just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Women on the U.S. political stage as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi steps down from the leadership position. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. Women in U.S. politics, the focus as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's legacy is remembered as she prepares to hand the reins over as the House Speaker. And for more, let's head to our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington and to Amy Morris. Amy. Thank you, John. Nancy Pelosi has been House Speaker for almost two decades. And as the first female Speaker of the House, she's opened doors for more women. Joining us now to talk about Pelosi and her unique style of leadership, Bloomberg News congressional reporter Laura Litvan. Laura, I want to thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, I think what's important to establish is uh, your relationship with Nancy Pelosi is that you've covered her for years. Um, Were you at all surprised when she announced that she would not be seeking the leadership? I had been thinking she would make that announcement because she had promised a couple years ago to get the votes to become speaker again, that she would be prepared to clear a a path for others, younger leaders, to, to have their turn. So I was not deeply surprised, but there, there was some sense of suspense. Now, let's talk a bit about what you have seen in the years that you've covered her. I mean, you've seen her on the House floor. You've seen her at the White House. Tell us a little bit about the woman who is Nancy Pelosi. I covered her for about 10 years, mm-hmm. starting. Uh, I covered her around the time uh, she was starting to rise up in politics and uh, through part of her first speakership. And uh, it's worth noting that, you know, she had come onto the scene in the House in 1987 
And uh, in 2001, she ran against Denny Hoyer for the whip job, and everyone knew this was the stepping stone moment that could set up who would be the next speaker because everyone knew uh, that the following year, Gephardt was probably going to step down as the Democratic leader. And when he did, she very quickly lined up the votes to replace him. And that put her in line. She was minority leader, but if they picked up the House, which they did in the 2006 elections, that was that was the history-making moment that she was in line to become the first female speaker ever. And she then took the gavel. I remember that historic moment mm-hmm. uh, on, on the House floor. Uh, let's look at another historic moment on the House floor, and that was when Nancy Pelosi announced that she'd be stepping down from House leadership. With great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. Now, we also heard from a pioneer for women in politics, Vice President Kamala Harris. She has been historic in so many ways, not only as a first, but because of the work that she has done and um, and the benefit that has resulted from her work. Okay, so, Laura, let's talk a little bit about Nancy Pelosi's legacy and the work that she's done with the White House, her relationships with the different presidents. Of course, uh, Donald Trump made it very clear he was happy, of course, that Republicans had regained the majority in the House. But he seemed to have some specific sentiment for Nancy Pelosi. We have taken over Congress. Nancy Pelosi has been fired. Isn't that nice? Now, that was as he was announcing his own run for president and and still managed to invoke Nancy Pelosi's name. Let's talk a little bit about Nancy Pelosi's relationship with Donald Trump. Well, it was a very uh, tense relationship and involved, uh, in many cases, one or the other of them walking out of White House meetings. Uh, one of the most famous moments was uh, in May 2019, uh, she had a meeting with Trump on infrastructure, and, and uh, she seemed to realize that she could kind of get under his skin and as a powerful woman and, and kind of throw him off track. And this was one of the big examples. But at this meeting, uh, kind of devolved into a discussion about Demo- House Democrats' investigations of him. And she at one point accused him of a cover-up on their investigations. And... Um, he ended up uh, leaving the meeting, and she wrote a letter to all House Democrats the following day that said uh, he, he, Trump had had a temper tantrum for all of us to see. So the next day, he's holding a meeting uh, or a press conference to talk about a multi-billion dollar farm aid package. And instead of talking about that, he spent a full half hour talking about House Democrats and how unfair it was that they were uh, investigating him and referring to crazy Nancy. Now, uh, you had mentioned that she, you know, I know a temper tantrum when I see one because she was a mother of five grandchildren to so many grandkids. Let me ask you about how she has managed the Democratic side of things, because she's had to hold that coalition together. She's had to hold that caucus together between the uh, more progressive Democrats and the more moderate or more traditional type Democrats, making sure that that vote didn't split, that party didn't split. Not an easy task. No, it's not. And there were, you know, quite a few moments, especially, you know, under Biden, she's had some moments where she was obviously struggling to keep progressives in line on the infrastructure package and letting that move on its own and before trying to work on Biden's economic package. She would use a variety of tactics. You talk about her being a a mother. One thing she's over the years, I've noticed sometimes you would hear about these negotiating sessions in her office with no food all going on all night to try to almost force the conversation. But but more often than not, uh, she wasn't operating so much as a parent or a parent figure, she was engaging in very tough tactics to consolidate her own power. And I'll point to 
the best one of the best examples might be what she did the moment she got in as speaker in 2007. She, without the knowledge of other House members at the very last minute in a rules package that passes to convene the Congress uh, the first day, which is, includes all kinds of routine things, there was a sentence in there saying that committee chairman can only serve for six years. And everyone voted for this without realizing that that was in there. And uh, it consolidated her power because there were these three Democratic uh, chairman called the old bulls, John Dingell on energy and commerce, John Conyers on judiciary, Charlie Rangel on ways and means that wanted to rival her power and could stay in these jobs forever. And they didn't realize they voted for it and they were furious. And then just two weeks later, John Dingell finds out that she, um, he's connected with the auto industry and isn't, wasn't as big into climate change pr uh, proposals as some other progressive Democrats were. And he finds out that she is encroaching on his committee's jurisdiction by creating a select committee on climate change and putting Ed Markey, who's very progressive on these issues, in charge of that. So that would be her legacy then, wouldn't it? How the, the way that she was able to use her wiles and use the other guy's maybe um, uh, mistakes and use that to help consolidate power. That's one of them. But another example, though, there's, an, there's another side, too, which is mm -hmm. her ability to unify them all when she really needed to. And you can credit the Democratic takeover in 2007 and um, again in 2018 with her keeping everyone together on, in the first instance, everyone, every Democrat in the House against President Bush's push to privatize Social Security accounts, which she could see would be politically unpopular. And he had been... He had a very high approval ratings, and by tacking this program again and again and again, it helped to drive down his approval ratings and set the stage for their campaigns. And then uh, with uh, the lead up to the 2018 elections, it was the repeal of Obamacare. Again, she held all House Democrats together against that. She also changed the whole idea about being a working mother because she launched her career in politics quite late. She did. She didn't even run for Congress until her last child was going off to college. But she had been very involved in uh, politics, attracting attention many years earlier as a leading fundraiser for her party. She um, be actually rose up to become the chairwoman of the California Democratic Party and later was the ch finance chair for the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. And it was those fundraising skills that then attracted attention. She ran for Congress in 1987, but she was when she was moving into leadership, it was her ability to raise money for the party that helped her excel and become that whip uh, in 2001 that set the stage for so, her rise. So she was 50, close to 50? She was 47 at the time. And it's also worth noting, you know, women used to wear pinstripes, you know, and dress in charcoal gray and try to look like they were similar dressed to men in the workplace. Right. They didn't talk about their children. She always surrounded herself in uh, when she was being sworn in as speaker with her grandchildren or other children of other members. Um, she would talk about being a mother often and a grandmother. She has nine grandchildren. Uh, she's wearing bright colors, pink and, and, and other things, and just showing a more feminine side. Is that where the white pantsuit comes from, or is that more of a suffrage thing? That's more of a suffragette uh, symbolism. She, and she was very good at, at these intentional wardrobe choices. You know, the white, when she showed up last week in the Capitol wearing the white pantsuit, it created, and this was the day she was going to say that whether she was going to seek the, the Democratic leadership position again, 
and everyone was wondering. They knew it was a big moment that she has that suit on. The white was was worn by uh, women in the women's movement dating back to the early 1900s, and we've seen Hillary Clinton when she accepted the nomination, the Democratic presidential nomination in 2016, wearing a white pantsuit. Nancy Pelosi wore it uh, during Trump's impeachment trials when she announced that they were going to pursue articles of impeachment. Uh, she wore them during both of Trump's uh, State of the Union addresses, including the time when in uh, 2019 when she tore his speech in half I on television. Yeah. Now, Laura, one of the things that you are doing now is following the Senate very closely. We always do these interviews looking forward, looking ahead to the coming week. What are you watching for from here that's going to be coming up? It's kind of on your radar. Well, a big question is whether or not Congress is going to address the debt ceiling. In the lame duck session, it's looking like maybe they won't, which will be uh, setting a stage for a big conflict in, uh, in 2023 because Republicans will have the House. There's still the opportunity if Democrats wanted to, while they still have control, to try to raise it now. Bloomberg News congressional reporter Laura Litvan, thank you so much for shedding some light on the legacy of Nancy Pelosi and what's going to be coming up in Congress. We appreciate it. That's what's going on in the nation's capital. For more of our political news coverage, you can tune into Balance of Power with David Weston weekdays at noon Wall Street time and Sound On with Joe Matthew weekdays at 5 p.m. Wall Street time. That's here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg. John. Amy Morris reporting from our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. Thanks, Amy. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and news you need to start your day. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.